Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. Hello there. As promised to you last week, we are back with a brand new series of The Contest and Me from us here at the Euro Trip. It's James with you, and it's also Rob Lilly. Hello. Hello. Yeah, here we are, like you say, as promised, with the first full episode of this brand new series of The Contest and Me, and we love these chats, don't we? Because The Contest and Me, if you are listening for the first time, these are long-form conversations with some well-known Eurovision fans about their love of the Eurovision Song Contest. And you get such wholesome answers from whoever it is that we end up speaking to on these episodes. And today is no different. Yeah, on the Eurotrip, we are so incredibly lucky, aren't we, Rob, to chat to some of Eurovision's biggest names. But sometimes those chats are only about 10 minutes long. But with this series, you get everything you could possibly want. Because we're Eurovision fans, we know you are a Eurovision fan listening, and the people we chat to on this series are big Eurovision fans too, including today's guest, which is a voice I'm sure you're going to recognise. It's the one and only Steve Holden. That's right, the host of the official Eurovision podcast. He has been on the Eurotrip plenty of times over the last couple of years, really, since we kicked off things over on the Eurotrip. It's brilliant to have him on board. And I was the one lucky enough to have a real deep dive into his history with Eurovision. And we chat all sorts about his love for the contest. We go into his university halls to find out what it was like watching the contest in the early 2000s. We go back to the 90s and his early years with the contest. And of course, he takes us behind the scenes at Eurovision 2022 as well. So shortly, we'll be hearing from Steve Holden on this episode of the Eurotrips, The Contest and Me. It may be August, Eurovision 2023, wherever it may be in the UK, may seem like a long way away from where we are now, but we are back. We're here to provide a gap in this Eurovision off-season with the new series of The Contest and Me, and James, it is good to be back. You say it's good to be back, although now it doesn't feel like two minutes ago because it was only, what, two weeks ago since we we had to jump off our summer holidays a little bit early to tell you all about the incredible news that, of course, the Eurovision Song Contest next year is coming to the UK. So hopefully this time, as opposed to the first episode in last year's series of The Contest and Me, we won't be sounding as rusty as we did last summer. That's a big claim. We've got a lot of this episode still to get through. So (laughs) that's a big, big claim. Yeah, thank you for joining us, everyone. And thank you to all of you who joined us for that bonus episode, as James mentioned, a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't had a listen, feel free to go back and do so. 
all about the UK hosting Eurovision 2023. And plenty of you, as I mentioned, got in touch. Uh, Johnny is my favourite listener who got in touch. So this is at JohnnyW1867 on Twitter. I always like Twitter. That was weird. Um, I always like reading out someone's Twitter handle. I enjoy it. Um, Johnny (laughs) sent us a picture, which is always very enjoyable. Uh, and it was just his legs. You know, like those pictures you get of people on holiday where people normally like take the mick. And the they hot do dog it legs. Like, yeah, hot dog legs. That's exactly what we've got <laughs> here. Uh, Johnny said, first day of holiday in Tenerife and the Euro Trip podcast is back. I know what I'm doing for the next hour. Cheers, boys. Uh, Johnny, you're very welcome. Uh, I assume you're back from your holiday now at the point at which you're listening to this. So I uh, hope you had a good one. Yeah, I, I reckon the uh, the location to listening to this episode is a bit different to being on holiday in Tenerife. I hope the weather is almost just as nice. That would be... I'm, I've, I've crossed my fingers. But given that, of course, it is August, I imagine a lot of people will be listening to this episode on their holidays. So if you are, I want some more hot dog leg pics of you listening to the podcast, wherever it may be, whether you're by the sea, maybe you're by the pool, maybe you're in your garden. Let us know. Or maybe you've gone to Norway and it's absolutely freezing cold and you, you you don't have to get your legs out for that. I don't think Rob just wants to see pictures of your legs. Let's just put that clarification out pretty early on. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've spoken for me there. Maybe I do. Maybe I do. <laughs> no, but it's been great to see so many of you getting in touch because we love it when we bring out a new episode and so many of you get in touch with us at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Victoria, just a simple yay. I think maybe that was a bit more enthusiastic the way she would have. There were more exclamation marks than you made it sound. Yeah. Yay! Maybe something like that. Um, And then Europops as well said, really enjoyed the interviews. Uh, And Fergs as well said, great to have you back. And obviously a true emergency podcast because there's no one second song. Just putting it out there. The one second song will return in the future. I think we can say that, like we can safely say that as the reigning one second song champion. I'm, of course, a big advocate of bringing that back on the podcast at some point in the future. I was going to call you out for for saying that, but I presume you are the champion because I didn't remember me being the champion. And maybe I tried to erase that from my memory. And we had that spreadsheet and everything. And here we are still (laughs) in the same position we always find ourselves in where we're not quite sure who was the winner. But no, it was definitely me. But yeah, thank you to all of you who got in touch and feel free, of course, to get in touch, whatever you're doing wherever you are, basically about whatever you like, at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, we're on the email as well. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Eurotrip. So of course, the main reason why we're back with you uh, for a brand new episode of the Eurotrip is to bring you a conversation for The Contest and Me. And as we mentioned before, episode one of this series is with Steve Holden. Of course, you'll know his name and you'll know his voice because he seems to be like the third presenter of the Eurotrip, the amount of times he comes on this podcast. But of course, he's also the host of the official Eurovision Song Contest podcast as well. Yes, he definitely is. And of course, Steve's connection with Eurovision goes back far longer ago than that, which of course we are going to hear about very, very shortly. Uh, Before he was the host of the official Eurovision podcast, of course, he worked at the BBC for many years. He was BBC Radio 1's music reporter, which also meant that he got to go out and cover the contest many, many times. I think he was in Sweden. He was in Rotterdam, of course, for the cancel contest as well. He was in Tel Aviv. He's been all over the shop. So plenty of great Eurovision memories on the way from him. Yeah, so without a doubt, you're going to get some great insights into 
the way Eurovision has flowed through his life. And the way we're going to do all of these conversations on this series is pretty much exactly what we did last year. So we're going to start by asking our guests for their thoughts on this year's contest in Turin. And then we're going to hop into a time machine and ask them for their first Eurovision memory. Then the moment that they first fell in love with the contest. And then the questions start to get a bit more difficult. We're going to try and find out what their favourite Eurovision year is, their favourite Eurovision song, their most memorable Eurovision moment. And then this question is a bit different to what we did last year. Because last year, of course, the UK was coming out of a pretty bad result, of course, coming last on the scoreboard with Nil Poir, where we asked, what does the UK have to do differently in the future? But it doesn't look like they have to do anything differently now. So it's now the question of how does the UK keep up that momentum following Sam Ryder's result this year? And then to end it, a bit of a hypothetical one, but it gets the, gets the brain going a little bit, this one. The one change you'd like to see at the contest. Yeah, these are some really, really difficult questions, and I don't know how I and I don't know how I would answer a lot of them. But thankfully, it's not me and James answering them, and it is our brilliant guests. And Steve gives some brilliant answers. So we take a trip to Mill Street for Eurovision in 1993. We go to some university halls in Leeds. We go behind the scenes in Turin, of course, because Steve had that very enviable position of being host of the official Revision podcast. So that meant he got an access all areas pass. So we'll be finding out all about the inner workings of the contest that happened just a couple of months ago, but does feel like a lifetime ago now. So let's get to it, shall we? This is Rob's conversation with Steve Holden on the contest and me. Steve Holden, host of the official Eurovision podcast. Welcome to the contest and me. Hello, Rob. Thank you for having me. Always lovely to chat. Steve, it is so good to have you back. You know how much we love having you on the podcast. We've spoken to you many times over the last few years on the Euro trip. But over the course of this episode, we are going to find out more about you and your love of the Eurovision Song Contest. But first, of course, it is now, what, two, three months ago now that we were in Turin. We were enjoying everything that Eurovision 2022 had to offer. I mean, what are your memories looking back on what was another very unique competition? It seems ages ago and yesterday at exactly the same time. I don't think I've ever immersed myself so fully in something for two weeks ever. I've covered Eurovision before, but doing the podcast and being in Turin and being there from the morning to the last thing at night, it was so crazy, but brilliant. I was so tired after I finished it, but the adrenaline still kept going. And ever since, I, I still listen to all the songs. I'm still following all of the contestants and artists from this year. I always love hearing their new songs when they put them out on Friday um, on Spotify or any other streaming platform that you want to listen to. I, I am still very much attached to the Turin contest because it was so brilliant. Now, just tell us about what it was like being there. And I guess in your role, you had kind of full access. It was kind of like an all access pass. So what was that like? And, you know, what did you get to see? I, I really did. I spent most of the time in the delegation bubble, which was a little room, which you saw as well, Rob, that was off of the corridors where the changing rooms are, the dressing rooms. And it's basically where 
all the artists could go and hang out, chill out, do some press interviews, go and get their hair done, get some food. And I used to sit on this desk that kind of faced outwards. And so you would just see all of the artists all day, day in, day out, just going about their business. And because I interviewed them a few times and uh, got to know some of their heads of delegation and the people they were working with. By the end of it, you're just kind of like waving, going, hi, hi there, Czech Republic. Hi, Iceland again. Uh, hi, Chanel. And it's just such a familial environment that was so lovely to be a part of. And like you said, I could, I, I with, with what I was doing at Eurovision with the podcast, I could kind of go anywhere I wanted. So when there was rehearsals, um, I'd often pop down to the green room uh, to see what things were looking like and sounding like just to take a break. And that's where you really kind of saw behind the curtain with just how much effort goes into making that show and how much effort the artists put in. Because everybody knows now they sing that song 20, 30, 40 times by the grand final or by the semi-finals when you're singing for When It Matters. You've sung that song so many times. So I just have so much respect for all of the artists that put in 100% because it must have been tiring. It must have been exhausting. And to still deliver a show like that was incredible. And one of the things I really wanted to touch on here as well in your role and being in the delegation bubble, as you said, and being so close to the artists, what was it like on those show nights? So after the grand final, of course, but after the semi-finals especially because... There must be so much emotion in that room. Of course, you've got the successful countries that progress, but then you have the countries who have been focusing on Eurovision for so long, and then just like that, their Eurovision dream's over. Yeah, that was the most striking, I'd say, because after semi-final two, I think, yeah, it was semi-final two, I was running around trying to get everybody and the 10 qualifiers are on cloud nine and they're whooping and screaming and their adrenaline is running so, so high. And then you see some of the contestants that didn't make it and they're just so forlorn and they're so gutted. I'll tell you what was the most emotional moment though, was after the grand final, after Ukraine had won, and this this happened on the podcast, on the on the Eurovision podcast, but I'd uh, built up a friendship with Oksana, who's the head of the Ukrainian delegation. And, you know, the logistics of getting Kalush Orchestra to Eurovision was incredible. They were all in different parts of Ukraine. They had to get special permission to leave. Oksana is their head of delegation. She is the one who is in charge of them, essentially, and was acting as their translator, both for people working at Eurovision and also for interviews. She worked so hard. And I did this interview after the press conference that they gave after they won. And we did it walking from the press center to the delegation center. And she was telling me all about who was in the band and how it felt and all this kind of stuff. And she's a very professional woman. She's great, but she's very professional, knows what she's got to do. And she started talking about the contest next year and how she would love to welcome people to Kiev because Kiev's so beautiful in May and the spring. And that's when she broke down in tears. And it felt like the two weeks and the months building up to that moment finally just all came out in that one burst of emotion. And obviously we know now that it's not going to be in Ukraine. It's just not possible. I mean, I've not spoken to her, but I think she will be happy that there will be a Ukrainian 
influence in the show next year because that's very much what the BBC have said. It's very much what Sam Ryder has said, saying that, you know, it's Ukraine's party. We're just going to have it at the UK's house. But yeah, that moment at, I don't know, 1am on the Saturday with Oksana, that's what it was all about. That's that's what that win meant to her, meant to Ukraine, um, and just was the pinnacle of emotion over those two weeks. Yeah, for anyone that hasn't yet listened to that episode, Steve, that you're talking about, which was your your last episode there in Turin after the grand final and that conversation with Oksana, it was absolutely incredible. So you have to go and, and check that out. Steve, we've spoken about 2022 and now we're going to go even further back because <laughs> here on the contest of me, we've got many, many things that we want to know. And the first one that always comes up is your very first Eurovision memory. Now, you have been on the podcast so many times, but this is something that we have never been able to cover off. So, Steve, what is your first memory of the Eurovision Song Contest? My first memory is Sonia taking part for the UK in 1993, wearing her purple outfit and singing a song. I was young at the time, and I was just getting into pop music and I remember her song and loving it, Better the Devil You Know. I remember her performing, I remember the dance, I remember her hair, I remember her coming second and realizing what an amazing show this was and I remember watching it with my mum and my younger brother who was really young so he wouldn't even remember watching it and just going what is this this is really up my street because I think as well there was other songs in that contest which was 93 that that kind of really stood out I think there was um the the Germany entry that year was like super pop and as like a young kid get you know listening to pop songs and getting into music it just struck a chord completely we're going to move on a little bit then steve so we've gone from first eurovision memory to the moment you first fell in love with the contest and from what you've said you know sonia's dress did, did a pretty good job of getting you most of the way there yeah i it, it did but my you know the when i really fell in love with it was when katrina and the waves won in 97 because the feeling I got from her winning and or the band winning with such a huge margin just felt incredible having watched it and understood it from 93 94 95 96 to then win in 97 it felt like a, a natural climax for the UK in the 90s and uh, I remember this is showing my age but I remember taping every single song off of the TV like so I put my like recording tape deck up to the to the speaker on my TV and recorded all the songs. And so then I could listen back to them. It wasn't even like a direct record. It was like speaker into, into no. speaker thing. No, it was proper prehistoric. <laughs> and, then, and then that meant that I could then listen to it in my my room. And I remember listening to it in the car. You know, I got mum to put it on in, in the car on the way to school and stuff. And that was the year when, obviously, Katrina and the Waves was there. But... Um, it was Italy's last showing for ages with a song called Fumi di Parole, which was amazing. I absolutely love that song. love that song. Still, I still play that yeah, song Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, because then they did. Jalice came back for Eurovision, um, the Eurovision concerts, didn't they? Yes. The house party concerts last year. Um, who else was in '97? Oh, uh, Paul Oscar for Iceland. I remember watching that and going, "Wow, that's that." Uh, you know, not realizing who I was as a as a as a member of the LGBT plus community, but realizing that this is somebody that's really interesting. If you watch the 1997 contest back, he is the most modern and stands out a mile. He's the, I think he's the last singer to perform. And just watching him with all the girls kind of riding around him, that was on another level, you know. So, yeah, a really memorable concert. And that's definitely when I was like, I want to be part of this, I think. It's really interesting, isn't it, that conversation about Eurovision and, of course, kind of the LGBTQ plus community and how it is often interlinked with, you know, self-discovery and an emergence as to the person that you potentially even at the time don't realise that you are or are going to become. And that's something that we've also spoken about in, in the previous series of the contest of me last year as well. Yeah, it's definitely, there's something about the people that take part, obviously the fans and the music, because, you know, the music is very, very, um, pop heavy to a certain degree and you know watching Dana International as the first transgender winner of Eurovision but being at that age and not really really understanding what's going on and certainly the conversation not being as progressive as it is now regarding who she is and who she was and what it meant at that moment in time but there are so many moments that um, that kind of connect the dots in a way between somebody who is LGBT plus and and discovering themselves. Like Eurovision was definitely a part of that. And you know, he, when I got into the early two thousands, I was at university, and for a couple of those years, I didn't want to admit that I was watching Eurovision. And I remember really specifically in the year two thousand and one. Uh, in my halls of residence, I had the TV in my room and there was a barbecue party thing happening outside. And I used to duck in to watch bits of Eurovision because I didn't want people to know that I was watching it. Yeah. Because, mate, because I wasn't out at that point either. You know, I hadn't really even come out to myself. And I don't know what stopped me from just saying to people, I, I, I'm an out and proud Eurovision fan. It's really odd. It's really hard to articulate and tell people about um but there's definitely a connection because then by the time i think it was the 2006 concert happened i was working in sheffield and that's when i was like starting house parties you know out and proud yeah let's get everyone around for eurovision it's an integral part of the year that kind of thing so it's kind of like coming out and uh coming out as a eurovision fan have kind of gone hand in hand if you know what I mean? It's really strange. So I can't really remember like the 2001, 2002 um, Eurovisions because I didn't fully invest my time in them. You've told me then 
two of the years it isn't because our next question is then your favorite eurovision year so it's not 2001 or 2002 because you have patchy memories of both but that leaves plenty of other ones to choose from i think this is hard because there are so many memorable years and there's an argument for saying that 2022 is the best eurovision year that i've ever experienced but if we're going with loving the contest as a fan and also being involved in the contest in a work capacity, I'm going to have to go, and and with quality of songs, I'm going to have to go with 2016 in Stockholm. Because that was the triangle of, I bought tickets for the jury final, so I got to see all those amazing songs. It, I was working for the BBC, I got to go, that was my, my first Eurovision that I got to work at and be behind the scenes and interview the artists and be part of the press centre and it was also just a high calibre year. It was obviously really newsworthy with Ukraine winning 1944, Dami Im with an incredible performance coming second. I remember loving that so, so much, like getting proper goosebumps. So for me, that will always be the best contest and also just the way Sweden put that on in the Globe Arena and that really was so visually striking especially with the LED floor you know everyone still remembers the tree growing behind Jamala at the point that she does the amazing note you know things really worked that year yeah I'll use this opportunity as well to to throw back to one of the previous conversations we had in the last series of the contest in me which was one with Paddy O'Connell the the BBC broadcaster as well who of course was the BBC semi-final commentator for many years as well and he mentioned 2004 Steve that was the year that he picked I think as his favourite Eurovision year that stood out and I think that is an interesting year as well because of course the contest was held in Turkey which yes you know is a country no longer in Eurovision but that in itself was its own special microcosm where you were you were so close of course to uh to crossing the the border of continent between europe and asia yeah and that was uh ruslana wasn't it who won in 2004 um always comes back to ukraine with eurovision doesn't it it? you're never far away from ukraine no no it really doesn't so on the face of it then a difficult question what's your favorite eurovision year i mean the questions just get harder which is what we find on the contest of me because then we move on to favorite eurovision song which if somebody were to ask me and thankfully you're not and i desperately hope you don't during this steve i don't really know the answer to that question but i'm gonna ask you anyway well I, I do have a favourite Eurovision song and I'm sorry that it might to a lot of people seem very straightforward and might to a lot of people seem quite boring and um, might to a lot of people not seem very exciting, but it is Euphoria by Lorene. You know, I, I just think it is an incredible, incredible pop song and I do not get bored of listening to it. It elevated the concert. It was a game changer it is still an absolutely 10 out of 10 pop song and that's not to say that i don't love dozens of other eurovision songs but i just think euphoria is the peak of the mountain for eurovision you know and i think i'm allowed to say that i think Uh, so i think so and there are no songs for me i think that stand the test of time as much as that song because we are now you know, we're now, what, 10 years on? Yeah. And actually, yeah. Steve, obviously, we've got to talk about it. You spoke to Lorene 
in the run up yeah. to, in the run up to the 2022 contest when of course she was marking 10 years since her win yeah i was so so pleased that she agreed to do a retrospective about 10 years of euphoria it was like a dream come true because i'd loved it so much um a shout out to carl who runs the scandy pop website because at the time he was doing like a week by week blog on Melfest and she was in the first heat of Melfest in 2012 and Carl was writing a little verdict after the rehearsals and I remember he said this doesn't sound just like a Melfest winner this sounds like a Eurovision winner and it's only week one Melody number 8 Euphoria Lorraine She said in the interview that I did with her that um, it was it was all her kind of creative process because you can't really see her face in it at a time when face and camera and connecting with the eyes was you know what you did or you know it, it really shook the game up a lot but beyond all that it's just an amazing song it's just a banger it's an absolute banger from the first air horn to the end it's and it, you know you just know every single second of that three minutes it's brilliant i'm going to mention some others um if you don't mind is that all right absolutely go for it so i love in 2012 spain's entry which was pastora solaire quedate conmigo which is an incredible ballad and it just goes up and up and up and it should have i think that should have come second to euphoria if you ask me there's a song from 2000 which people might know by latvia and it was the year they debuted and it's called my star and it's by brainstorm and i remember thinking this is incredible a really charismatic frontman slightly weird it was certainly not in your typical Eurovision song vein, but always used to like listen to that. It's really good, that song. It's, like, it's really, really good. good. And Reynas Kalpas, the, the front man that you've mentioned there, then went on to, to host the contest when it was in Latvia in 2003. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, perfect. I was, I was reading about him recently. He's got two, he's, his sons are twins and they're in a band. And I just wonder whether they'll one day try and represent Latvia. It would be amazing. Um, I love I Feed You My Love by Margaret Berger, Norway, 2013. I still think that stands the test of time now, even now, um, just in terms of performance, production, just a really amazing pop song. And then also uh, Loic Notet, Rhythm Inside from 2015, Belgium, again, I think is a really different, amazing Eurovision song. Um, but there are there are so many. That's not an exclusive or exhaustive list. Uh, every year, I'd say there are three to five that then I will end up listening repeatedly till the end of time. Um, and I'm not going to say which ones from 2022 because <laughs> I think it's too soon. But yeah, there are there are there are so many good songs. But Euphoria is is the 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 mother, the grandmother the matriarch of all Eurovision songs, in my opinion. 
or maybe Steve mentioned some of your favourites there, do let us know at Eurostrip Podcast, Twitter and Instagram. Let us know and also share whatever your favourites are as well. And don't be afraid to agree with Steve and say that Euphoria is your favourite because, it, I don't know, it seems that people uh, are afraid to come out and be proud that Euphoria is their favourite song. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid at all. And uh, shout out to Fuego, obviously, as well, because that is an, another incredible Eurovision song. I couldn't like do this interview without mentioning Fuego because yes that that was a game changer too absolutely absolutely uh from your favorite song to your most memorable Eurovision moment and this can be I guess anything really this can be a personal experience this can be something you experience watching at home this can be kind of a moment with kind of friends in the Euro village or, or whatever you want it to be Steve so yeah your most memorable Eurovision moment from down the years this might sound cliched as well, but I do think that uh, Riverdance in 1994, at the time, I probably didn't appreciate it. But retrospectively, having watched it is an incredible Eurovision moment. And now, my friends, Riverdance, a full-bodied orchestral dance piece composed by Bill Whelan, involving traditional Irish dancers, the Celtic Choir Anuana and the magical dance partnership of Jean Butler and Michael Flatley. Ladies and gentlemen, River Dance. Just the builder, the impact, the spectacle. Considering that the stage is quite small compared to Eurovision stages nowadays, I just think the impact that that had was was amazing. Uh, I have to say, 2022, watching uh, Sam Ryder do his first rehearsal of Spaceman in the green room and going, wow, that is amazing. That's that's something special was another um, good moment. And that wasn't just me being British and being from the UK. That was me just being a Eurovision fan and seeing something, um, seeing something exciting. And I think especially because the UK had hadn't done very well the previous years, just seeing them kind of press that reset button and go from, well, basically doing a Netherlands, doing an, an Anouk. Uh, was really really special as well and I just remember looking around people going oh what did we just see then that was pretty good wasn't it that was pretty amazing that is a seamless transition Steve into our next question the excellent broadcaster that you are but before we get to that i've got to say that it's never happened before on the contest to me and i'm delighted that it has because of course me and you shared that moment that I moment of, that moment of sam rider's first rehearsal in turin and i know i don't think i will ever forget that for the rest of my life which seems sad but it was absolutely incredible like you say for all of the for all of the UK's, you know, fortunes over the last few years, and and like you say, not just because it was the UK, but just as a as a piece of incredible 
wow staging. It, just to see it for the first time and be as surprised as everyone else was to see it was it was a moment, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think if it had been any country, I would have felt the same as well. Just in terms of putting, because when you are at Eurovision, you are there to impress and you are there to blow people's socks off. And that's what he did. I think Chanel did it as well with slow-mo, I have to say. Um, but yeah, you you are there to present something that is incredible on a world stage. That's what you aim for. That's what every country should be aiming for. And, uh, and Sam did it without a shadow of a doubt. That Thursday morning, I think it was, uh, and you had UK rehearsal followed by Spain, like UK first rehearsal, followed by <laughs> yeah. Spain's first rehearsal. Like it was yeah. one after the other. It was, it was incredible. I know. And everyone loves, everyone loves a journey, don't they? You know, just from literally from zero to hero for both the UK and Spain. Um, it's, I, I, I do, I watch back Chanel once a week and I'm just blo- still blown away by her choreo. Just cannot get over it. And I notice something different each time I watch it. The, the hairpin flip or you know one what one of the backing dancers is doing while she's doing something it's just it's just another level that is what we want to see at eurovision you know it's that it's that kind of impressive um world class spectacle yeah yeah absolutely incredible uh, i mentioned it before steve a, a perfect transition because on the contest of me last year one of the questions that we asked everybody was and it was an obvious question to ask at the time what can the UK do to turn around their fortunes? Of course, at that point, we were coming off the back of the result that we saw in 2021 and, and the, the nil point. But now that question beautifully has morphed into mm. how does the UK keep its momentum in 2023? Because when we were doing these conversations last year, I don't think we ever possibly imagined that the UK would be A, the runners-up of Eurovision, and be the hosts of Eurovision Hosted 2023. It. I know. So, you know how, do, how, do you, how do we do it? We were talking before this conversation saying, you know, it's often tricky for the hosts, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you have to look at the last 10 years. Uh, host countries genuinely don't do very well and come like right at the bottom, regardless of whether the song's good or not. That's It's, 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 it's a weird um, quirk in Eurovision. I think, and this, is, this isn't necessarily UK specific, I just think you need to have an act that is totally 100% ready to be an ambassador for your country and to throw themselves into it like Sam did with the guts and the bravery and the confidence and the likability. Um, just believe in what you're singing because it shows. I know we say it all the time, but you can tell when an act is really behind what they're doing. I think um, one of the best examples this year of that was Maru for Portugal. She sent a song that is not really, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a Eurovision song. Not that we know what that is in this day and age. And, you know, in the interviews that I did with her beforehand, she just wanted to go and show something that she was passionate about. She loved being Portuguese. She said, I wanted to bring, uh, I wanted to make the stage a living room and she did it, you know, it, it, she didn't try, try too hard. It wasn't like a false trying. Do you know what I mean, Rob? It's like she just did something that she loved. And I think that is what the UK or any country next year has to do. Just send an artist that's authentic and is enjoying what they're doing, you know, and doesn't have the fear of not doing well. 
But that's why you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Mara there, you mentioned Chanel in the previous answer. That's why Eurovision is so special, because in the world of Eurovision, both things are fine. Like, you can do both things and be brilliant. Like, you can do Chanel, or you can do Mara. Like, you can do small and intimate. You can do big and amazing choreography. Like, it's both fine. It is completely. And, you know, even an act like Sister from Iceland, who didn't do as well in the final, they still, when I spoke to them afterwards, they still loved taking part. They didn't mind where they came. They didn't mind that they came um, third or fourth from bottom because they they believed in what they were doing with a song that they, they loved. You know, it's, 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 if you, I think that's the best attitude that anybody taking part in Eurovision can have. Just go in and don't be afraid of coming last or first or in the middle. Just go and sing your song. And whoever it is that ends up representing the UK in 2023, I hope you get the opportunity to interview them by the bins, as you did with Sam Ryder last year. Yeah, I know, by the bins. So glamorous. And it was in the boiling sunlight as well. But that's the magic of Eurovision. It's not all like glamorous and showy. It can actually be, uh, you know, a little bit rough around the edges. But that's that is perfect for me. I love that. No, me too. Absolutely. Just shows the realness of the thing, doesn't it? Like you say, it doesn't all have to be, uh, doesn't all have to be glamour. Steve, what a journey it's been on. Thank you for joining us. There is one question left. And that question is, and it, you may answer this and say, mm-hmm. it's perfect as it is. And I don't, I, I don't want any changes whatsoever. But one thing that we have asked people previously on the contest to me, and we've seen some interesting answers to this one. If there was anything you could change about the contest, what would it be? Like, what's the change you'd most like to see going forward? I think the contest structurally, aesthetically, is is really perfect at the moment. I love the scoring. I think they've nailed that completely in terms of the drama. And you don't know the winner ages before all the results have come through, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, especially with the, uh, the with the with the results that come through from the from the public. I don't think it's a, a change necessarily, but I'd love to see some smaller countries debut in the contest you know I'd love to see Liechtenstein in it I'd love to see Monaco come back there are countries that we miss as well like Turkey uh, like Bosnia Herzegovina and I know that there are issues with these countries and they've got all got their own reasons or their the EBU has their own reasons for them not being part of it but just in terms of nostalgia and something that would be a little bit different going forward it would be great to see some of those countries either back in it or making their debut but you know we we just don't know where that can happen no, absolutely. We just want to spread that Eurovision love that little bit further. That's basically Indeed. it. Yes. <laughs> Steve Holden, host of the official Eurovision podcast, massive Eurovision fan. Thank you so much for being our first guest on this brand new series of The Contest and Me. And I am sure, and you know full well, that we will be chatting many more times between now and Eurovision 2023, wherever that may be. Oh, Rob, thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. It's it's really nice to to share what the contest means to me, you know, and why I love it so so much. And I, before we know it, we're going to be back on Eurovision season again. The uh, the national finals are going to start up, and I really do think that next year there's going to be even more focus on Eurovision. I think the only way is up for the contest. It's got such a bright future ahead of it. And, you know, I 
I think this year, more than any other year, I've been listening to the songs so much more after the contest has finished. And that's a really good sign because it sticks with you and the artists stick with you. So, yeah, it's it. The, the contest is in good shape right now. The perfect place to finish. Steve Holden, thank you so much for joining us on The Contest and Me. Thanks, Rob. You're listening to The Contest and Me, a podcast from the Euro Trip. Oh, that was so much fun, wasn't it? Huge thanks to Steve Holden for taking some time out of his summer to chat all things Eurovision. I forgot just how much fun those conversations really are. It's just so nice, like we've already said, to find out more about some of the regular voices that you often hear on this podcast. Because like we said earlier on, you know, we get them on to talk about a specific subject. We often only get 10 minutes or so. And chances are we're talking about that thing or that issue or that topic or whatever's going on. But we never get the chance to actually hear about them. So it's nice to have some time in the Eurovision off-season just to find out more about all of these well-known Eurovision personalities. And Steve did not disappoint some absolutely brilliant stories there and some like honest and truthful accounts of his relationship with the contest as well that i'm sure will have resonated with a lot of you listening yeah absolutely i mean the the stuff he was on about when he was you know growing up and going to university i think so many people will have been listening to that so intently because I, I reckon, as you say, so many people will resonate with that. But I reckon so many people will have gone through a very similar experience. And I think it's really, really important that people like Steve get to tell that story to make sure so many other people in the Eurovision community aren't alone because they may feel because they may well feel like they are. Yeah, hey, here, absolutely. So thank you to Steve for being so open and honest and having that conversation with us. And thank you for everything else besides. Thank you for unashamedly saying that Euphoria is your favourite Eurovision song. Fair play, Steve. Well done for doing that. And also lovely to hear talk of Steve recording the contest onto a cassette tape from the telly. I reckon there's some people who don't know what that actually means. They're not even old enough to understand what that process would have involved. Uh, Steve, thank you if you are listening uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. And what a way to kick off this series of The Contest and Me. And we'll be back with another one next week. Yeah, that is not it. Rest assured, it's not just a one-episode series of The Contest and Me. We've got a bunch more of those conversations to come over the next few weeks. And the next one comes in just seven days' time. We'll be back with you next Wednesday for the second episode of this series of The Contest and Me. And if you liked what you heard or you've got any thoughts or comments, then please get in touch. We'd love to hear them at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, send us an email. We love an email. Hello at EuroTripPodcast.com. Especially if you want to send us your snaps of where you're listening, if you're having a listen on your summer holidays. So until next time, don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars. From me, James, it's goodbye. And from me, Rob, it's goodbye.